0: to 3 Games Podcast for October 11th, 2015. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Doom. That's right, it is not Doom. Now, many folks think of Doom as the first first first-person shooter, and that is correct in many ways. It codified for us how a first-person shooter should play. The sense of speed, of motion, the power of the guns, the the way the monsters would rush at you, the, the eerie look of the dungeon, uh, all of those things informed first-person shooters for a very long time, uh, and they began with Doom. But Doom was not the first first-person game. Before Doom, by a full year, Doom came out in 93, in 1992... Ultima Underworld came out. And what many folks may not remember or realize is that Ultima Underworld, from a technical standpoint, did everything Doom could do, and more, I believe. Now, uh, if you're a real game engine geek, you might know a few things that Doom could do that Ultima Underworld couldn't. Fair enough. But as far as this idea of presenting a 3D world that looks like we expect them to look that has the very similitude to, to be really immersive and, and to really hook you as a gamer and bring you into a virtual world, Ultima Underworld beat Doom to that by a year. Now, to be fair, we had 3D graphics well before Ultima Underworld. I remember 10 years before Ultima Underworld, uh, as a kid playing a game called Battlezone, where you were in a tank in a 3D world. However, that world was wire graphics. Uh, Also, well before Underworld, uh, we had flight sims, for instance, which would have flat, shaded graphics. I believe that's what it's called. Uh, And those were just uniformly colored blocks. Uh, Basically, the world would just look like, you know, buildings would just be pieces of geography. Uh, You know, they might as well be, be rectangles. But it was still very 3D in a way that wireframe graphics weren't. And it looked awesome at the time. But when Ultima Underworld came out... It was this kind of 3D world, but instead of flat shading, there was something on it called texture mapping that would look like a dungeon wall, and uh, it was was amazing at the time. Uh, If you remember playing Doom for the first time, that's what it looked like, but it was a year before Doom. Uh, And I believe, too, I could be wrong here, uh, I believe Ultimate Underworld was able to, to do things that Doom couldn't even manage, uh, for instance, in 1996, Duke Nukem 3D came out. And for technical game engine professionals and and people who really liked uh, fiddling with 3D worlds, I think Duke Nukem 3D did something with multiple levels that previously wasn't possible, where you could have one room on top of another room, where you could look down in the previous room. Uh, I believe, I could be wrong, but that's something that, that Duke Nukem 3D was able to manage three years after Doom that Doom couldn't do. But a year before Doom, I'm pretty sure Ultima Underworld was doing that. So uh, what what's more important to me, however, the, these ideas of 3D engines and who did what first before whom, those are interesting historical footnotes. But for me, as a gamer, the more relevant point, the more relevant contribution of Ultima Underworld... ...is the company that made it. Ultima Underworld was the first game from Looking Glass. Uh, And Looking Glass was a a company that gave us... ...some of the greatest milestones of video gaming. You know, from Looking Glass... ...we got names like Warren Spector and Harvey Smith... ...Ken Levine, uh, Doug Church. These These are alums from Looking Glass... Looking Glass was in Cambridge. They were a, a group of developers there, just as ID is associated with Texas. Uh, Looking Glass is associated with Cambridge, uh, and they gave us games like System Shock, uh, Terra Nova, Thief, of of course, uh, all hugely important games in 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 certain ways. Uh, you know, these are the games that led to Deus Ex, to BioShock. Uh, and you could make the argument, without Ultima Underworld we wouldn't have looking glass, without looking glass we wouldn't have these these games. So that to me is a is a greater point about the contribution that Ultima Underworld makes to, to video gaming. So we fast forward now to twenty fifteen. Uh last spring, one of the fellows from Looking Glass, and I, I think some of the other uh some of his colleagues from way back when are also joining him, formed a company called Other Side Entertainment. And other side entertainment launched a Kickstarter for Underworld Ascendant. Ascendant, Ascension. Am I getting that? Uh, Ascendant. Yes, Ascension is. Is there another game called Ascension? Uh, at any rate, Underworld Ascendant, uh, was was uh was kickstarted last spring. Hugely successful. I think this is one of those Kickstarters that really capitalizes on on nostalgia. On, on people's fond memories of Ultima Underworld. Uh, it made $850,000, which is a great number, but here's another number that I think is even more important. 14,000 people supported it. It's a lot of people, a lot of people who came out of the woodwork and were like, yeah, I want a new Underworld. Here's another number. Of those 14,000, well over 500 pledged $1,000 or more. They were that enthusiastic about funding a new Underworld. So, uh, the, the, the intended delivery, the intended release is, is, uh, November of 2016, late 2016. We'll see if that happens. A lot of Kickstarters need a little extra time. Their, their initial projections are a little optimistic. Uh, but what, what they've been doing since that spring launch of the Kickstarter is, of course, working on the game. And just recently, this past week, uh, they have put together a, a sort of a demo. It's a gameplay trailer, you might say. And they were showing this to various press, and they were traveling to different cities and meeting with press folks. So I got an invitation to come out and talk to Doug Newrath. I'm sorry, Paul Newrath. Sorry, Paul. Uh about Underworld Ascendant. And if if you know Looking Glass games, you know that Paul Newrath's name is on pretty much every single one of them. Uh he hasn't been involved in game development since then in the same way as guys like Warren Spector or Ken Levine. But he was a huge presence back then. He was a huge part of what Looking Glass accomplished. So the opportunity to come out and talk to Paul Neurath, yes, please, sign me up. Uh, so I, I, I met with Paul uh, and a fellow named Joe Fielder uh, at an apartment that they had rented near downtown L.A. And uh, when I first came in, they were like, hey, let us show you this, this demo. Uh, at which point I said, well, you know, I've seen it online. Uh, I would kind of just rather sit down and talk with you guys for an hour, uh, which we did. So what I'm bringing you today, and this might be ill-advised, is a raw feed of my conversation with Paul Newrath and Joe Fielder. Uh, and the reason this might be ill-advised, I'm, I'm afraid the sound quality is not great. What, what happened was when I came in, I just set an iPad down at a table in the middle of the room. I hit record, and we just talked. So there's a lot of room noise. Uh, every now and then, I'll put down my coffee cup, and it'll it'll make this kind of rattle or like, bang like that uh, because I just wasn't thinking. Uh, at one point, they, uh, they brought out a sheet of paper for me. Uh, that was one of the part of the design document of the original Ultima Underworld, and they're explaining how hey, these were some of the tenets of game design back then. This still applies to uh, Underworld Ascendant today. You as a podcast listener, that will mean nothing to you. It's just me sitting there looking at a piece of paper. It's great podcasting, Tom. Nice work. Uh, But suffice to say, it was this cool look at, here's what they were doing in 1992. Here's now what they're doing in 2015. How much has changed and how much hasn't changed. Uh, And that one piece of paper was a fascinating example where the top of it, were these important design elements. The bottom of it was a bunch of little meticulous numbers crunching that they kind of feel, you know, you don't need to mess with that stuff. We'll put that under the hood. Uh, So uh, for the next hour or so, I apologize for the sound quality. It's a fascinating discussion, though. Uh, You you know, Paul is one of the greats, uh, and it's great to listen to him and Joe talk about what they're planning to do with Ascendant. Uh, Now, I apologize, too. There's no formal introduction. Joe Fielder is the fellow with the deeper voice. Uh, And by the way, who is Joe Fielder, you might ask? Uh, Joe Fielder is one of three writers credited uh, alongside Ken Levine for Bioshock Infinite, which, by the way, I had many problems with Bioshock Infinite. The writing was not one of them. Uh, So that's Joe Fielder's main claim to fame at this point. He is now at Other Side. Uh, I believe he's the lead director on... Uh, also an underworld descendant. I could be wrong about that, but at any rate, he's he's at high enough level where he could answer the kind of questions I was asking. And of course, Paul—he's the not-so-deep voice that you'll hear. Uh, he needs no introduction. So, uh, I hope that the sound quality isn't too insufferable. But uh, here's my conversation with Paul Durock and Joe Fielder. The
1: You've seen the playable uh, prototype, and uh, it is—it is uh, it's just kind of a peek at the improvisation engine. How you might play uh, if you were, say, virtually unarmed <laughs> and uh, had to use your your wits and uh, utilize the environment uh, to to survive against a, a shadow beast, uh, a pretty pretty uh, monstrous opponent. Uh, and you know, in, in, this, in the case of the video, it's uh, like Paul said, uh, a rogue who has a few spells. Uh, but, and we don't necessarily have hardcore character classes per se. Mm-hmm. We've got skills that fall into combat and stealth and magic. And if you chose to focus, you know, bear down on those, uh, those play, play styles specifically, you would have a very different experience. Uh, uh, you know, Tim, Tim Stelmach, our lead designer, was the lead designer on Thief. So he's, uh, uh, and on, on Ultima Underworld too. Uh, so he's really uh, got a lot of experience in making games with distinct play styles. and so if you if you played as you know focusing on combat, you would end up with a character that could be very adaptive in waiting in a battle and adapting in a physical sense. And you know uh, focusing on stealth will let you sneak around, and get the lay of the land, and uh, maybe sneak past some you know bigger bigger more challenging opponents. Uh, and focusing on magic, it's uh, uh, I've been uh, referring to it as you're you're kind of unlocking the, the source code of uh, reality. Uh, it opens up. Uh, uh, a wide variety of uh, new new abilities for you. Our spells are not necessarily the, the main offensive skills. They're very much uh tools and that you can alter your environment and, and help yourself and enhance and whatnot. Uh, and it's a procedural uh magic system that's uh rune-based like the original uh Ultima Underworld one and two uh but it's it really gives you the opportunity to create your own favorite spells. It's uh, something that uh, Tim Stonehawk had uh, uh, come up with, and it's, I think it's pretty, pretty uh, neat and, and allows for a lot of player choice. And so, you know, even within those... the, the variety of chin, within those skills, uh, implicit in just focusing and bearing down, you can also mix and match. So uh, in the case of the video, uh, you're a rogue who has a, a few spells. In the case of, say, if you were focusing uh, very much on magic, but you grabbed a few stealth spells, uh, skills, (laughs) you could uh, sneak into uh, uh, an area, see what challenges awaited you, and prepare just the right spell for it. So you can really uh, just mix and match and and create the the character you want
2: to create. One of the things that the video is uh, doing artificially is that you can hear the voiceover of the character talking to himself. We won't do it in the actual game. We don't want to voice you because we want to be a role play. Yeah. We just did that so that people watching the video can get a sense of what the player was thinking. So, okay, <laughs> so Show-don't-tell sort of Yeah, character. she'll be a CD will encounter. She's kind of a cool character. She's chaotic. Agent of chaos.
1: Yeah, she's definitely... She's definitely <laughs> she
2: reminds me of Howard Great Dorian Dory, It's like, oh, well.
1: <laughs> no, no, I got that. Huh. Now... Uh, and uh, I mean, there's two things that, that are uh, I think interesting that you know, Paul had mentioned before uh that you're playing the game as yourself. And I think that actually doing that uh makes makes the game uh more interesting because there are a number of I wouldn't say moral choices. There's not the sort of like I'm gonna play as good or bad. Mm-hmm. But uh we have a faction system where we have these three rival factions who all have pretty reasonable claims to running the underworld. They're all budding heads they're not quite warring yet um, but you know, choosing who you want to ally yourself with is, is going to be a, a major decision with a lot of uh, implications around it. We've got um, our, our dwarves uh, are they're, they're very shrewd and canny. I, I refer to them uh, as a, a deadweed deadwood meets mensa so, uh, you know, they're, they're responsible for the great work in the on um, the, uh, the Stygian Abyss, which is re- stopping the volcano from erupting, which is something we haven't really done in real life. Um, and uh, they're, they're very, very dedicated. They're the only, uh, I think, the only beings in the, the Stygian Abyss who want to be there. <laughs> they're there by choice. Uh, we also have uh, the Dark Elms, uh who are these sort of uh, uh, intellectual Spartans. They're very, uh, I think... Uh, uh they're they're similar and very just dis- they're opposite sides of the coin from uh, the, the dwarves and uh, they they uh in a lot of ways they could be friends but they they have different wants and desires and they, they definitely butt heads uh and we have a third faction that's that's a little more bizarre and alien they're uh shamblers they're they're a fungal hive mind so they have a a very, like, long and wide view of the, the staging it is and how things should be run. So, and based on who you choose to ally with, uh, it will unlock different narrative, uh, different quests, different endings, potentially, uh, and also, uh, access, exclusive access to different weapons, uh, and, uh, runes. So you'll have the ability to create different spells based off of that. So, I mean, that, that faction system, that, those, those choices you make, uh, tied in with uh, how you grow your character, and then also just the moment-to-moment gameplay of choices for the improvisation engine, uh, you could just have a very, very different experience every time you play through. And I, there's a few
0: narrative uh, uh uh, options as well, and we're going to follow on that <laughs> So a couple of questions, when you use the term improvisation engine, is that just the game engine in general, or is that uh, a reference to how you're, you're driving the plot? What does improvisation engine... That's our own engine. It's a suite of technology, suite of tools that we've built, extended
2: uh, on top of the UE5 uh, that give us uh, a lot of ways to uh, uh, create the dynamics the, the, the deep interactions and immersion, uh, they really enable the player choice. And it's humble that they, they are what our goals to allow the players to feel very clever and to come up with the solutions. Are, are, uh, the way we know the litmus test for this is a player comes up with a solution that none of us ever, wow, they solved it that way, never thought back. Um, and... Uh, it, it's really taking a lot of learnings we've done in these you know other games and how do you extend that. Um, and it's it's simulation technology at some level, and we treat the world as a real live living, live, authentic place. I and mean, that's one thing that so many games they abstract as a game and you know it's a fantasy world. So we're like, no, treat it as if it really exists. You know, when I read The Lord of the Rings or something like Tolkien. One of the reasons I like that fiction is because when you read Tolkien, it's as if this world really exists and treats it in an honest way. And so it, that authenticity comes across. He's researched it deeply. It has its own internal logic. So we're trying to do that in a gaming context. So this abyss is a real place. If the player wasn't there, we would be doing his own stuff anyway. Now the player's tossed in as sort of its own chaos agent <laughs> into the mix. But then the player has the agency to do all kinds of different things and the world can spin in all kinds of interesting ways and the improvisation engine is, is a very important dynamic tool to allow
0: you to. Uh, when, when I'm curious and I don't know how much this is uh, set yet or how much you can talk about it but uh, a key part of an RPG is the character build and you've talked a bit about how you make the character your own uh, it's kind of a classless system um, can you tell me yet uh, do you know how a character will advance? Is the idea that with kills you get experience points, you go up levels, you get points to spend? Do you have something different in mind? Uh, or is that something you even know yet?
2: Well, we know some of it. So the, one of the things that we try to avoid is abstractions. So you know we won't have you know strength and dexterity, uh, even experience points. It's more... We try and some it's just a you know it is an elegance approach uh, again if you treated an authentic world the fantasy world exists. this you as a character wouldn't be getting like experience in an you can allocate but it's, it's more how you learn if say a martial artist the more you use a weapon, the better you can get that weapon. the more you try skills the better you're going to get at those skills. Uh, I mean it is a game, and so we need some can mechanic. I mean, mechanics under the hood. We need some user interface in there, but we're gonna to try to make it as natural human as, as possible. So what we're trying to convey is I can try to learn these skills, I can get better at, you know, agility skills. And so from a rogue and I start to get better at, you know, services or hiding in shadows or lock picking or setting traps. So you know, practice and stuff, and, and certainly the, the the more you do, the, the it's an existential system. You, know, you, you are you, you are what you do uh, at some level, and the more you do something, the better you will get at it. Okay. Uh, but we also have to, we want to preview things. One of the things that a lot of open games don't do very well is you, you make choices ahead of time. They're like, I want that skill or I want that class without knowing yet what that really
1: means. And you might even be ju- judging like, oh, well, I, I don't like stealth in this game, other game that i played without knowing how we do stuff. So. so we would like to kind of try to preview some of the skills and abilities you have so you can make an informed decision that so you're not just
2: locking yourself on and based off of a So we kinda of want a system where you can try a skill out and then you can you know, you'll get a like a, a you know get to try it out, see how it works, and then get better at it and better at it and better at it. Um, there, there, there is there is a constraint though. You can't be an expert at everything. So there is a sense of, if, if over the arc of the game, uh, um, and I'm, now I'll, I'll, I'll describe it in an abstract way. Let's say that there's 10,000 experience points that you might get during the course of the game. There is a, okay, if I allocate that across all these different skills, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be a jack of all trades but a master of none. Or if I really like, love the magic stuff and I really want to go deep on that, you can certainly do that and then become a, a, a master mage and, and, and have these wonderfully powerful and very customized spells that are like your spells are completely different than Joe has. But then you're going to be not very good at fighting and not very good at, at other things because you're focused on those particular skills
0: This then makes me wonder, uh, and I know you said it was abstract, this idea that there are 10,000 experience points, how do you allocate them? Uh, in a lot of RPGs, the player is free to do what's often referred to as grinding, uh, which I think is a bad name because it it indicates something negative. Um, But in a lot of RPGs, it's not necessarily negative to just kill a bunch of things, get powerful, then approach the main Mm storyline. However, that takes from the developers an awareness of where a player is on a power curve, what sort of challenges they're capable of dealing with. Um, Do you foresee in in, uh, Ascension... Uh, it, do you want the player to be able to do that, or do you want to control that and make sure players basically just have those ten thousand experience points to play with over the course of the game? Or can somebody just take forever to get twenty thousand? And again, I realize yeah, yeah we're going to gate it a different way, so it's not right. a literal. It's not a literal. I
2: grind, 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 and I ultimately get really good at this particular combat skill, and then I can grind, 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 and get really good at that. We'll actually narrow it down so, uh, I'm trying to give a good analogy. It's like you only have so many brain cells. So if you fill your brain cells <laughs> up with this, we then say you don't have enough remaining to do that. And you kind of grind until the cows come home. You, you're, you've already sort of allocated. So the, the, you will start to shape by, by the midpoint in the game for most players, the, the overall shape of kind of where they're focused Will already kind of pushing in the direction. Mm-hmm. We don't mind replay is very important. So it's okay for us for someone to say, okay, I've now played the game for 20 hours and I've really developed a pretty, pretty good fighter, you know, I've got a lot of really good fighter skills. But now I'm happy with the game. Oh, I'd rather be a thief. Well, you can restart a character if you want, but that particular character, you no, know, you're not going to be a master thief at this point. You've already made your decisions. Decisions are only interesting if they matter, if they have a consequence, right? I I don't like games where it doesn't really matter and I think I'm making decisions but I can just always reverse them. Then as soon as you learn that, it's like, whatever, I'll just do whatever. So we have to enforce that and we allow players to get into not great situations. You can fail. And, and And I'm encouraged by games like Dark Souls that you can fail, right? Because I think those games were harder to accept some years ago, and today they're, they're actually pretty popular. Now we're not going to be brutal. I think Dark Souls ends bad, bro. It's not it. brutal a brutal game, Dark Souls. But decisions do matter, and you can fail, and I think that's fine. But you're going to right. a game that encourages easier your wits and problem solving, because without failure, there's no point in you know, are not You're not compelled to problem solve.
0: Can you paint for me a picture of what it would be like to fail? And mm-hmm. mm-hmm. how does the player respond to failing? Well, if it's only died,
2: right. uh, you could certainly get in a situation where you're at a disadvantage. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say,
1: uh, it's not necessarily like, you know, failure as in failing the game. Uh, I think one of the things Dark if that was interesting was there's a moment I had in, in that game where uh, I saw some player graffiti that said, hey, kill the vendor, go get something cool. And I'm like, okay, and, you know, and I did that. And then later on, I ran into a dragon, and I looked up. Well, how do I kill that dragon? Like, well, you buy a bow off of the vendor. Like, no, <laughs> you know. But that, that was a neat experience. And so I went back and you know tried to. the did like, let you do that. Yeah. Right? yeah. And like, yeah, right, right. Yeah. So we want to give people that, that freedom. freedom, uh, and, and you know, it may maybe that like, hey, you attempted to uh, solve something in a way, like you tried to, we, we, you moved a finite amount of lava into an area, and you weren't able to open up a, use it to uh, unlock a door. And then you, you know, so now you can't go into that room anymore. It's not like a failure state for the game, but, you know, next time you might do that a little differently. Or there might be, like, hey, I
2: have to figure out a different way. Right. Now, now I have to unlock uh, the, you know, the door, and it has a really challenging lock on it, and you I have to develop that skill, or maybe I can, you know, blast the door or with the power spell. Or. Because there's so many ways to solve things, if one way fails, there's usually one okay. Other ways, but for you that may be harder to do now.
0: But, do, you, oh, do you know at this point how you're handling death? Does it just go back to a previous we save? Know. We don't actually know. Sure we don't quite know. Not not actually. one of the, One of the things that I guess
1: the converse of that is the, the uh, amazing amount of, of freedom that we you know, allow the player, the, the Ultima Underworld series uh, allowed you to uh, go down lower levels in the Stitching Abyss that were you know, very much tuned for harder difficulties. And you could go down there. And, you know, you really ran a risk by going down. But if you snuck down to some of the lower levels, there a just gems lying around, and you sneak up and grab some gems, They go back up to a higher level one. It was a real interesting uh, way of handling difficulty. I uh,
0: uh, do intend to, to duplicate it. Um, it sounds like uh, with the factions, uh, you, you want the choices to be mutually exclusive. Is that correct? Is it... Uh... You, you have no problem in mutual Yeah, you know, first I, I think so
2: because, again, mm-hmm. it's choice. And replay replayability, if, if you, if the first time is through you align mm-hmm. with the dwarves and you say, I wonder what it would be like to align with the dark elves, try to get a new character. Um, so that's the way we've we debated that. We've also debated so the Yojimbo approach. So way you, Yojimbo. Oh, oh, good. Chris Howard? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yes. great. So, Yojimbo, the brilliance about Yojimbo is the factions in the town, Oh, um, the character plays them off each other. And so the one thought would be a, a character would go in there and it's just pretending to you know, support each one and actually just kind of with each of them. I, I don't know if can do that. I think we've been think using it as a verb, and it's, it's a pretty funny do, do. But, uh, uh,
0: yeah, that hasn't been decided. <laughs> uh, so you obviously have uh, a sensor of three factions. Um how can you, in a game where the player is stuck in a dungeon, uh, how can you do world building? How can you teach a new player who, as you said, is not a specific character, he's not a plan start, I presume he's not shipwrecked or amnesia, or maybe he is, whatever, uh, but how are you uh, world building for a player who just gets dropped into a dungeon?
2: Uh, I mean, it's a little similar to the way we did in the original game. So, you know, you start in a in a. Of the dungeon, that the levels are more loosely defined than they we were in the original underworld, but we'll call a level which is, you know, pre- pretty easy. Monsters are pretty tough. And there's a lot of narrative. Uh, the way we tell the narrative is, is uh, something we did on Underworld and even more so on uh, System Shock. We read Crump, so you can find clues and hints, and so we're we're spoon feeding you little nuggets. We're not throwing a lot of exposition at exposition at you, and so you're you're uncovering this, the narrative by your own actions of exploration, which feels much more you know uh, uh, engaging, I think, than just being told the story. And so we want the players to uncover and incrementally. And and and, and so you'll early on the challenges are, are not only much lower, but they're much more. Uh, it's not a tutorial. But we're, we'll point you in directions. So we'll say, okay, early on, you learn basics about like you know using a weapon and you know what a combat and an encounter would be. And so we set those things up in a way that you know the player can sort of start learning about what does it mean to fight these monsters and be in engagement and learn these things.
1: Hi, um, uh, two points I'd love to sneak in uh one thing, uh you know, we will have a larger narrative that that you'll uh, come to, to become familiar with over time. Uh, you know, but even it's something that we will introduce uh even just getting uh up to speed on the, the different factions and, and uh what their different points are, something that'll you know, take some time to unfold. Uh but we've got uh, a supplemental narrative that ties into well, Paul, you mentioned uh making the environment feel real. Like we're we're we have a design philosophy of constantly giving you uh, tangible gameplay information. Uh, it's uh, something that we're not to throw out too many buzzwords, but <laughs> we, we're calling our, our systemic ecology, uh, and it's it kind of developed out of uh, uh, talks with Paul about how, how we were going to develop our ecology and. Uh, you really pushed us not to necessarily simulate every blade of grass in the entire place, but that don't have time. Do yeah, yeah. Uh, that all of our creatures have uh, these, you know, strengths and weaknesses wants and desires that are pretty readily observable by the by the player, and that the player can then formulate strategies. You know? uh, say for the shadow beast, it's uh, it's almost invisible in low light, uh, but you can always get shadow. It's Hates light. It tries to knock torches out of your hand. Knocks them off the wall. But it's very sensitive to, to light as well. And those are things you can pretty readily understand and get a sense of, and start formulating uh, strategies around. And we have a supplemental narrative that is breadcrumbing throughout. But it's a. It's also uh, sorry, I'm throwing in eight points here. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a thing about Lord where. Uh, if I see too much text on screen I just, just through it. Sure. Right. As a writer, I just like comment. Uh, so I wanted to really uh, make sure that we're packing tangible gameplay information in there. So we uh, our supplemental narrative is a character who has explored the staging abyss before you and has created these uh, journals in a sort of Lewis and Clark sort of way where sketching out the you know the shadow beast and uh, uh, describing the different, uh, uh, aspects of the, the strategic ecology for all the creatures. And meanwhile, since this character has a sort of similar, uh, path in you, uh, you're getting some hints at the larger narrative. So, uh, you're getting, we're keeping it very bite-sized, giving you, you know, tangible information, and also, uh, you know, putting some pretty awesome art in it as well. So, uh, it's really just one of, there's several ways that we're trying to just constantly give you information so you can teach you how to play the game uh and have fun, but not in a sort of hand holding sort of way.
0: So uh are you guys is what you guys doing at all informed by uh roguelikes and survival games? For instance, you know, roguelikes with permadeath, death and you go back and you uh it's something you're not doing anything like that, but then there survival games there's a lot of crafting where you can starve to death and you need to eat, uh are either of these types of games influencing or informing what you're doing? They are. We, we play
2: them. We talk about them. And, 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 uh, some of us really enjoy that kind of gameplay. It's not. It's not so focused on that you know, survival. It's not like you know you're you you're rubbing sticks to make fire and, and all that. But there's some elements of that. And uh, I mean the original Underworld has some elements of that. You would you would, if you didn't eat, right. you know, or you didn't sleep it would start to have negative negative consequences. It would it would slow you down. And that that's really more the approach. It's not I'm gonna starve and die, but if I have not eaten in a while, it's gonna, you know, I'll I'll heal more slowly and I'll have certain kind of, I'll get more tired and those kinds of things. So it it's a it, it bogs you down not not to take mm-hmm. care of those things. And uh so it's a
0: light survival kind um, of. In the last couple of Fallout games, they had that sort of thing, but they made it optional. They call it hardcore mode, yeah. uh, where you would have to eat and, and drink and sleep. You would have these needs bars. Basically, yeah, I don't think we're going to yeah.
2: optional because I think the hard thing you do is the optional. It's just you either do it or you don't do it, and I think you, you want to integrate it here into the gameplay. And again, it, by making it optional, makes like it a gamey system. We want it to be okay if you're in this dungeon and you're you know. Having to like find food, you have to find food. Yeah, uh, if you create more of a challenge, you could simply go down to a lower level and you will have a double challenge. I <laughs> so, mean, we'll, we'll have a difficulty setting, I'm sure, but that's more behind the scenes tweaking of all the numbers. So, you know, the damage you take will all be a little bit more at a higher level and those kinds of things. But we won't, I don't think we're going to have, you know, when they don't have to be. It's, is
0: to me, too abstract. It's, it sounds like it's an integrated part of the design. Yes. Yeah. It's either integrated or not. Um, you say difficulty levels. Uh, do you know if there will be any incentive to play at harder difficulty levels? I mean, that might it's be like, too right. specific. For a brand right maybe I play it. It's it's it. Enough, right? It's
2: it's right. Okay. Yeah. To say, hey, Joe, I beat I mean,
0: I, I. just think of Diablo, where as you turn up the difficulty level, you also are increasing the amount of reward you get. Uh, right. Like there, so there's a brand new rights aspect, but there's also a tangible return for making the game more difficult. Is that part of your design philosophy with uh, with this game? And again, you may not know, this may be too specific a question. Yeah,
2: no, it's a good question. Um, in, 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 a, in a more extensive, in, in a philosophical way, yes, but I'm not sure about tangible rewards. This isn't a game about acquiring sort of tangible rewards, it's, it's about you becoming very, very confident. And feeling very successful in mastering the challenges around you. It's not about I accumulated this
0: pile of gold or this pile of gold. Mm-hmm. And actually, that makes me wonder so, uh, is there a screen with stats and numbers on it? Is that something you're wanting to avoid? We're going to try to avoid that. Okay. And we're going to try to make that
2: as less, as least abstract as we can. I mean, players want to see some tangible sense of progress, so there has to be something there. But it's not going to be a screen full of numbers. Did the Underworlds uh, have like a... They yeah. did. So the Underworlds had, uh, I like to think of it as a one-way, and old-school computer role-playing game, or even, you know, paper gaming. So we had strength and dexterity and charisma. And that came from traditional games like the, you know, the, the Alchemist and games of that era. And we just wanted to jettison all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's silly to me. I've ever the 16, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know you could be a paladin. It's like, what? <laughs> uh, how much I mean, mean, play? I've, I've played tons of B&D day, but... It's yeah. but, but sure, well, yeah. That's hard. it has a place. Yeah, it has a yeah, place. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw yeah. so you actually found the old uh, uh,
1: printout of the... Uh, describing the combat system. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me grab that. Oh, it's pretty, pretty it's neat. For, it's, like, it's, a, yeah. it's a printout of the, so uh, the combat awesome. system philosophy awesome. yeah. for... Uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, it's the original one's got some notes on it, and like this is the actual
2: document from back in the day. Um, after we uh, show that, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about it. So this bit. is uh, this is not This is from 1990, and this is one of the style of design documents. And this is just a one pager we did for in in designing Underworld, uh, in which. There was one thing that really caught my attention on that. Uh, one thing... So the top half of that strikes me today is still being pretty contemporary. Mm-hmm. Most of that stuff would apply today. Mm-hmm. The bottom half is the legacy like, in D&D, right? And, and trying to think through how we need to do that. And that's
0: the stuff we want to get. Sure, sure.
1: No, there's a note in there that really uh, hits on the point that when we were talking about the ecology, you really... Pushed us to make sure that everything was very
0: observable by the player. and you know, that's That was true then, it's true, true now. I noticed down here for your for encumbrance. Uh, can I carry everything I find? The encumbrance Yeah, have yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah,
2: uh, yeah. If your character is developed very you know, physical skills, you need to carry more. So we'll
0: have that element. Uh, how much are you guys competing with? Uh, open world games like like GTA um Just Cause the, the, the new arc of the Batman games like how much is that something that you have to take into account when you're making this is that your competition well we, we do so you know when, when when the original Underworld came out there was really nothing like it except mm-hmm. a different environment
2: I think the two big differences well three big differences one were a true role playing game and those games were... um, and I think that's really very different um if you, if, if you enjoy real role-playing games. The, the other factor is that while we are open world in the sense of a sandbox world and that there's a lot of options for you to do, is still the Stygian Abyss is still a, a, a tiny compared to, say, Skyrim, which you just run for miles and miles and miles. And the important difference there is that we're a much more intimate experience and the detail level is far, far higher. The density of interactions is is tenfold higher than a Skyrim or whatever. It's much higher. The, the thing about Skyrim, which is a great game in a lot of ways, I just find that after I've gone over the 100 Hillside and 100 View or 100 Village or 100 Dungeon, that it all comes to the same. Um, and the scale is cool the compromise in supporting that level of scale is sort of a sameness and it, it, we, this is a much more graphic experience this is a, this is a living breathing world and it's a place where everyone matters um, and it's a cool like I come into a new room and it feels different it looks different I learned something new um, so it, it, that's a, that scale and that intimacy is very different I
1: think that ties into what you asked before about the world building and how do you, how do you uh, really instill the, 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 feel of the place in, in, uh, the sort of subterranean world. And, you know, we have, uh, we, are really looking at the, the Stygian Abyss as a, as a, character. Uh, you know, that's something that's, it, it's a pretty unique environment and discovering it should be kind of a fascinating experience. It should be full of, of awe and wonder. Uh, it's this, uh, sort of an accidental, uh, ecology that's evolved with, uh, you know, just, uh, life isn't really supposed to exist in this place. It's a very harsh environment, and these uh, dimensional gates are introducing elements from all these different places and becoming this, this very strange melange. We might have uh, snow coming in from uh, ice dimension, creatures coming in from different uh, dimensions that would never normally meet, and they're all mixing, commingling, and, and evolving together. We're calling it uh, fantasy evolved, where... Uh, you know, it's really a, we're taking a lot of the tropes and we're trying to, uh, mix them together in interesting ways and, uh, progress them in, in new and different ones. And so that it feels like a really fresh, interesting experience. Uh, but even though it is a, uh, it isn't hundreds and hundreds of miles, we have uh, the ability to, uh, really mix and match and, and bring some uh, strange, uh, uh, juxtaposition and contrast in uh, these different,
0: uh, uh environments. Um, boating heads and shooting hands just the game end? Like, uh, is there a point where the player?
2: As narrative end,
0: you get okay. the end of it. It's replayability is the focus. We can't.
2: We're indie team. We don't have a hundred people. We can't. We can't make gigantic, massive amounts of quantity of content. So, what we can do though is is create a game where you want to try and try and try different ways, and different solutions, and different characters. So. It has a narrative art. It's not some giant game that just goes on and mm-hmm. on. Uh, do you guys make judgments about whether or not a player is good or evil? No. Mm-hmm. No, we don't. We stand back from that. It's not your choice, right? There's not that who jokes are really. It's not the traditional I make a moral choice about like good or bad. We, we stay impartial on that. Mm-hmm.
0: Right? If, if you're jazzed because of the choice you made, great through uh, where do you stand uh, on <clears throat> fast travel and the reason I ask is because fast travel is obviously very convenient for the player but fast travel also I feel sacrifices a sense of, of geography and getting a sense of the way of the land uh, what are your feelings on that so um, and,
2: and we do this in the, the underworld, we do this in System shop. so we're not going to offer any mechanic uh, like a game mechanic allow you to fast travel the world's relatively compact compared to like, Skyrim or anything like that. So it's not like you're... You're not going long distances ever. Um, and, yes, it breaks the gameplay. As, as soon as the physicality of the world kind of like, well, I can just teleport around. Um, one of the things we talked about early on was, should we you know, what about destructible terrain? We're going to have some destructible terrain, but we're not going to allow you to say just tunnel through walls because if we're constructing some space that has a, a neat dynamic and then you just plow through a wall it's meaningless then, right and you just bypass all those monsters and traps and everything because I can just go wherever I want so um, we will have magic though and so magic allows you within kind of very limited ability to move around but we're going to really limit that it's not just a teleport anywhere I want so there is some ability to move around it's more like a Blinky kind of thing I right? can go you know I can see over there, I can make, like, it's a very powerful spell too, it's it like a magic leap, as it were. Um, but that, that's different than just teleporting around without traveling. Uh, travel is important, so you're thinking about how I move around the space, how I get from A to B to C, where the, there's three different routes I can take. One of them is much more dangerous and hazardous, but as a shortcut, you know, again, if you can just teleport around it, who cares? becomes irrelevant. So we force you in the
0: physicality of this world. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a twist in, uh, in the game? Yes. Of course. In America, in a narrative, wasn't. In uh, many states. Yeah, <laughs> in many so, No. no. There's, there's, there's well, that's what I'm going to ask. I guess there are more going to be a big twist. It basically, if you have in mind a big twist, yeah. Okay. We're not ready to talk about it. No, of course, I think you never should. <laughs> <laughs> well, the we'll twist is, we'll tell you everything right now. <laughs> 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 no, well, I, I just kind of ask because um, I, I wonder if that's expected. Like, yes. if, if I mean, that's something that's. Well,
2: uh, the way I'm uh, not a story writer, but when I see a good film or whatever, Lots of films have twists and surprises you know the the, the sixth sense or whatever you know that but it's always how you tell the story right the twist itself can be very you know whatever but it's how you tell it it's the
1: telling that that makes the twist interesting yeah well well, uh, twists and turns we're not necessarily a gotcha you know per se there's also uh, you know based on uh, a line with uh, the different factions they have different different views on the underworld it's not like uh, you may you may have to play through multiple times to get a, a kind of a full knowledge of, of uh, the events and the history. Uh, uh, so what's the, uh, the uh, blind man describing elephants? You know, like uh, the, the shamblers definitely have their own perspective, on and uh, they've been around for a, a very, very long time. Uh, the, the dark elves are relatively recent, a few They're generations, generations. Uh, and the, the dwarves uh, longer. But uh, they all have their their own unique view of the, the events and. Uh, uh, what are the, the main forces at work? And uh, I feel like uh, we're like I said we're holding off on some of our main narratives till later because so, you know there's a, there's some fun
2: things to, to We are getting uh, Tracy Hickman is writing an underworld. Now. Oh, wow, I remember that name. Yeah, Dragonlance yeah. Um, yeah, books. Uh, he is also he wrote out the novel for Shroud. Uh, what he's doing with us is he's writing a prequel to the game event, So he's actually taking the events from a couple generations before the player will enter uh, underworld center. And so, in the book going to come out uh, next before the, the the game does. So, for anyone who's interested in reading the book, they'll get sort of a backstory and a context. So, sort of fun way to extend the narrative in the book. And we'll also draw some of those elements and create our own uh, fiction. Just Tracy, so have a title for it yet? Yeah. He does not have a title. Okay. Working on that, and we're going to release yeah. that
1: as a, a serial. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we've we have been working a, together. It's been pretty neat. I've read a. A lot of the less, uh novels in, in college, and so it so, so a real treat to work with him. And he definitely has a, his, uh, uh, a lot of skills in world building. And, uh, it's been a, a lot of uh, fun, fun conversations. So. Now,
0: just, just for
2: clarification, is it going to be digital and and digital digital and and, and uh, our you know our So it'll come out of serially. Yeah, we actually we haven't talked about that with the fans, so I should probably. Okay. Well, we we'll, we'll talk about that more. That's Tracy's doing it well. Yeah, yeah we've we already announced it. The Kickstarter, uh, we, we interviewed Tracy and talked
0: about the right. So the fans mm-hmm. know
2: that it's is this right. hard.
0: Yeah, we haven't gotten to the details. Uh, this being uh, y'all's first time, I think, oh, y'all's first time to, to work with a Kickstarter. my very first time. Have there been, uh, so obviously it was very successful for you. Uh, now that uh, the campaign is over and you're down to to working on the game, have there been any surprises either pleasant or unpleasant for what it's like to do a game out of a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. Um, it's been a learning experience. I've never done a Kickstarter or anything like that. I don't think great. Yeah. And when you say nothing can prepare yeah, you, what do you feel like was... Uh, no. Well, that makes me like, what were you unprepared for? Or what was surprising to you, I guess?
1: Well, I think every, every day is just kind of a surprise. And, uh, you know, you, you get a lot of interaction with the fans. And that's uh, you get a lot of very personal stories, uh, which is uh, very interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing you go into and you, you prepare as much as you can for. And then uh, you also want to be just very reactive to what people are, are looking for and uh, you know what works and what doesn't, and you know, so. Uh, but I think that uh, the thing that that I found particularly rewarding and surprising was the the level of interaction that the fans had with you, and just the letters people write you. Uh, and uh, it's something that when you're working with a, a, a developer, that's uh, I think you know you you described that, that you know for uh, back in back in the day that uh, at Looking Glass that, that it was like a uh, the, you didn't have any reaction or, or interaction.
2: Well, we were some of our electronic that didn't want us talking about the money. all. We, we were on like a gag order, and it was kind of weird. We were in a little back corner, Nick working on the game, and we couldn't tell anyone what we were doing. And so I actually liked it. Uh, it's been a challenge, but I really liked the Kickstarter and the crowdsource fun. the a way to connect to the fans and, and hear their passion. Um, it's a lot of work. The Kickstarter is an incredible amount of work on Kickstarter, and I think a lot of developers don't understand that and, and um, don't appreciate how much work it is. But it, it, it's been worth it, and we've got you know a oh, cluster fifteen thousand people now back the game, and it continues to get more backers. Uh, so that's great, and and I think it's a it's a huge advantage. You know, we for years we make these games, or we did the game, where we were hoping it would connect with the fans and we were doing the right features. We had and we put it in a retail box and put it on the shelf. And do we make the right game? And I, I think it's really very cool that you can release these, you know, pre alphas and you know go through, you know, green light and all that stuff. And it's also that the fans can get earlier versions of the game, and then you can see what the what they like and what they respond to and what they don't connect with. We're still responsible for designing the game and our remember releasing design to them, but. There's a lot of times where we're not really sure no, though it's not so much that we don't have a, a, we don't believe that the design will work but does it connect or have we, have we expressed it in the right way. So if we're trying to get some you know quality of a, of a feature out of there like that the way we like the discussion you had about how do you craft a character you know system where you're growing a character that feels natural, doesn't feel artificial you't have a lot of numbers. Still get enough sense of progression that I feel like yeah I'm really growing the character and I have a tangible sense of progression. That can be hard to you know achieve that, and it's not easy to say, but hard to, to get that right. So that's an example. We really want to put that out there and try it out and, and see how people do Do we hit that right mark? And it gives us a chance to you know see that and play with it and tune it until we get
0: it right before the game is a commercial. Does it make it difficult, like you mentioned, uh, you guys have been quiet for a while, uh, and now you're doing a, a new uh, sort of a, a media uh, exposure and talking to journalists and stuff, uh, does it make it difficult for you guys to go through those quiet periods? Because um, I would imagine uh, part of what comes up from a Kickstarter is people want to constantly know where you are, what's, what's going on. Um. I think we get a little bit of a break in, in after you do a
2: Kickstarter, so there's Tradition. I think a lot of backers now realize, that, and, and certainly Chris, uh, Chris Roberts went through with this, Richard Garriott, uh, uh, Brian Fargo, and they're all guys I've worked with over the years. They all were ahead of us by a year or two, and they all went through a similar process. Where after the Kickstarter, they went relatively quiet until they had something really to show.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I think a lot of fans get that, and they're like. Yeah, work on the game. You know, we don't need you to be talking to us. We, we talked so much to the fans during the Kickstarter. I think we we talked ourselves out. got everything right There were a few things that, you know, like well, as we were, were focusing on this,
1: that, you know, hey, we didn't want to necessarily show or talk about the Shadow Beast because we wanted to kind of say that so you could see it. Uh We gave a few little, you know, peeks of concept art or things like that, but, you know, there were other aspects about the game that we could talk about. Some of the world building, some of the dwarves, uh, just a, how we approach the... You know, uh, uh, you know, solving some of the questions. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we've got a regular, uh, uh, conversation, a regular newsletter with the
2: fans that we'll, we've got a regular newsletter. But we'll, we'll up the bandwidth of dialogue back and forth from this point forward. And this is a September snapshot. We're going to be doing regular updates. Uh, I don't know if it'll be every month, but every month, month and a half, we're going to be showing more, uh, in the not too distant feature. We're, the future, we're going to figure out our first playable prototype. To, to the fans, there's a or, uh, one tier above the I Can not remember 25 dollars? And above I can't remember. Got access to uh, the first playable prototype. So we'll give them that, and that, that's you know before the end of the year. Um, and and so we're re-engaging. It's a process of re-engaging. But I think people will want to see more regular to sort of, us and, and showing progress, and we want to show them and progress is a wonderful thing. And, so from this snapshot, it's not so much as, what is September is. It? That's not an end-all, right? That's just that here's a snapshot we're going to be showing more regularly. Here's, because this, uh, as saying earlier, this snapshot is a little artificial because we're showing an encounter with one shadow beast, you know, the player versus one creature. And that's not ever that really going to happen in the game. You, you wouldn't be in a space in these five or six rooms with one creature. There's typically, be there might be dwarves there. And if you had with with the dwarves they might say, hey, you know, they have some ability to harness in the Shadow Beast or help you out. If you're alive to say the Dark Elf, they're like, go get Jack. Yeah. You know. So the whole thing would be much more dynamic. There'd be a lot more agents and elements going on in the actual game. Uh so we need to that's something we need to show. We also really want to show, you know, well, here you could play, you know, a rogue or a fighter style character or, you know, a mage character and see how it this sort of encounter came out very differently so in the real playable prototype those are the kinds of things we want to show so we need to show that kind of pro- progress and those additional elements uh,
0: a, lot, a lot of work ahead of us yeah. Yeah. Uh, you just made me think of uh, a lot of people or some people will take a game like that like baby sex or this or something and they'll try to go through and play without killing someone right. uh, is that something that you want to be possible in, uh, in this game yes Right. Um, in, not
2: in such a literal sense. I mean, DSX has very much ABC, right, the three styles, and it's almost codified, mm-hmm. and it's very cool in a way, but it, it's, a, I wouldn't call it artificial, but it's, that's the sensibility of the game, mm-hmm. in that way. Here is a role-playing game, it's not so sort of black and white, it's not A, B, or C. So, you might go through and do a lot of, stealthy kind of gameplay, but then also use some magic, or use a little bit of fighting, but if you wanted to, so, so I don't know whether we're literally I mean, I guess literally it's an open question, whether you literally could play without ever killing a monster? Maybe. Uh, I think it'd be kind of cool, but it's not, it's not like Thief, where we reward you and say, can you stealth this game the entire way through without ever killing an opponent? It's not that literal kind of game, because it's in your family, you're this character and it's not you're trying to play a stealth mode, that would be an abstraction. Uh, but if players want to try to do that, let them do it. Fair. Yeah, I'm, I'm
1: reminded of the, the television show Naked Frame where there's yeah. the, the vegetarians show up and they're like, Yeah, I might have to eat meat. <laughs> like I might have to compromise <laughs> <for everybody. laughs> <I'm> like uh <laughs> yeah, like I say it, like uh I just got the really small calorie load after eating right. all of this these tubers
2: and you, you got a, a lizard? You know, anyway, so... Yeah. It's, and I think that's another great play. place where with, with fan feedback, we can get a sense of, do people really want that as a sort of a its own goal? And if they really do, I, I don't have a problem with it. It's just that then, then we would create that as a meta kind of thing.
0: I just played an RPG that uh, by the time I got through, I, I never fought a single battle, which I thought was kind of a... A bold thing for the developer to do because there's a whole game system there that I never experienced, and it was kind of by choice that let me do that, but, um, which I did not, especially with that. It's called Age of Decadence. Hmm. Huh. Um, it's a little indie uh, thing, comes out on Steam, I think, next week. Hmm. Uh, it's a more conventional, top down RPG, <laughs> but it lots you know, if you want to put all your points in uh, Persuade, for instance. Uh, you can get to the end. Yeah, you never fight a single battle. You know, there's no boss at the end. I was expecting, uh, but I thought that was kind of brave for them to do. Um, uh, finally, uh, and this is kind of a higher uh, level, sort of a theoretical question, but uh, what would you say uh, the game is about? What are the themes of it? I mean, obviously, you know, you have a narrative in mind. There's three factions. You talk about the location being kind of a character as well. Right. Uh, there will be an end. You even reference what you sort of feel is a, a twist or a reveal that you have in mind. Uh, what is the point of theme of the game?
2: So there's a couple. I'll, 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 we'll, we'll both answer mm-hmm. that. Maybe will you different answer, I'm sure. But I think it's not about one pure thing. So part of it is that immersion, that real sense of, Again, go back to like a Tolkien or, you know, fantasy world. I really want to experience it. I want to be there and be in that experience and feel like it is to feel as close as I can to that experience that I would have in a novel where I, when I read a really good book, I, I read it through and then the world goes away. And, you know, five hours later, I'm done with the book and I've just totally been immersed in that. So there is that suspension, disbelief, belief, and that immersion. So that's that's one thing we want to achieve.
0: I can actually interrupt real quick. There's this awesome quote uh, from John Ford, uh, the, the director, who said something along the lines of, uh, if I can make you forget who you are for two hours, I've got my job. Right. So I, I think there's a real, genuine aspect of that. If a player
2: forgets that they are a real person in this earth and instead think that this character they're playing is, is more real for them during the course of playing this game than the of what we succeed. Uh, the narrative aspect of that is we're, we're revisiting a theme that we did in the original Underworld and, and, uh, which is this Stitching Abyss is a, it's a hellhole, right? I and mean, it's full of these a lot of creatures in there have been thrown in there and it's a very dangerous deadly place. The human largely humans who live up in the above ground, you know, they throw their prisoners down there to, to, to rot and die. And so it's, it's it's it has a bad reputation right? It's like this is a really bad place. The reality is, is, that it's a very diverse, thriving, interesting, dynamic place. And so, there is sort of a theme of sort of diversity. And as a stranger in a strange land, you come in, not a clue. At the end of it, you value this as your home, and you value it, and you value the diversity, and you've made your decisions. And this is a, a, a an awesome place. Um, and so that sort of arc. Of appreciating a place that you were just terrified of, and then you know becomes your home, is sort of an arc of it. And, and these communities that are thrown together, and you know you make sense of that, right? You make choices about. And the utopia aspect is that we're bringing back uh, Caprius who is a character. I mean, he's you know we're alive in this game, so he's more of a spirit without any more details. in the original underworld, just before the player comes in. Or when the player is coming in, he's trying to make the utopia of this. And as typical utopias often don't work out very well, right? So he had a very narrow vision of what a utopia is. It fails. You as a player coming in in the aftermath of all this a couple generations later, it still has its echoes and repercussions. And the, the player has their own role to play in all that. Mm-hmm. So without giving away more twists and stuff like that. Um, so, I think I've always been fascinated by utopias and dystopias and all that. So, that's part of the theme. Great. Yeah, yeah. 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 no, I mean, I. I, I it's
1: time. I re- reiterate, yeah, no, I, it's not pretty much the
2: same. No. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the Bioshock games had yeah. that, part that yeah. as well. I think one of the things Ken liked about the, I mean, Ken talks about the underworld and it was, was that, you know, some utopia themes. Yeah. Uh, Definitely, it's not that it's a regional. Yeah, and definitely, definition. a lot of
1: themes that we want to uh, capitalize on. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think that the real sense of place. Uh, I mean, games have this opportunity to transport you to a place that you've never, never been before, and never can go to. And uh, the, the stitching of this is a, a fascinating hellhole. hole. <laughs> you know, uh, you no, know, someone asked the other day, really, what, what we want the player to feel, and, uh, and just off the bat, like you know, uh, if we if we can accomplish to make you feel anything, that's a, that's you know fantastic uh you know there will be moments of 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 you know where we want you to be afraid you know you hear the shadow beast uh in the dark uh someone had when we first were developing the shadow beast someone said i'm going to have nightmares uh after hearing that and i was like oh good <laughs> like, that made me very happy especially he sounds a little twisted uh and now uh, that's it but uh you know, like, but you know, having the, the, the sense of awe and wonder and and fright. Uh, but I think ultimately, like Paul says, have uh, being able to look back at your your experience in the game and having a feeling of accomplishment, how far you've come, that that is, I think, the goal.
0: So we've got a year to go before we find out how this turns out. At least a year. Uh, And one of my initial responses when Underworld Ascendant was announced, uh, as someone who is naturally cynical, I tend to not care that much about previews. Uh, I kind of don't want to hear about a game until it's out. Just give me the finished product. That's the point. I want to see what, what you have done. So one of my initial responses when underworld ascendant was announced and some of you might feel this way was well how interesting can you make a game that's just one dungeon that's all underground uh you know from skyrim we think of dungeons as diversions it's just a little slice of the world that's confined in an underground area and you duck into it and you experience it briefly and then you come out to the larger game world uh which is where all the 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 marvel and the spectacle and the majesty happens. You know, a dungeon, a cave, eh, whatever. So that was kind of my response uh, mentally when I, I heard about a new Underworld game, is, hey, you know, technologically and narratively, haven't we come out of a cave yet? Haven't we broken into the sunlight and into wider worlds? Which, to be fair, I think is unfair. And here's why. Uh... I, I used to play... It's interesting, actually. This is another group of, of, of developers in Cambridge, I believe. Actually, maybe they're Boston proper, but there's there's a developer out there called Turbine. And Turbine made uh, makes, is currently working on, Lord of the Rings Online, which when it came out was a beautiful representation of Tolkien's world. Uh, I loved that MMO. Uh unfortunately it went free to play. I feel like that compromised a lot of the world building. But before it went free to play, one of their last expansions, uh the the idea behind the game was that it would progress with the fellowship of the ring. You know, it began in the Shire and it worked its way through locations roughly analogous to the way they unfolded in the books. Uh so by the time that uh the the last part I experienced before I stopped playing the game and moved on, and before it went to -to free-to-play, and I lost interest, Uh, the last thing they released was a Moria add-on, which took place entirely in a cave, in a dungeon. You know, Moria is just a... It's kind of a passageway that the Fellowship takes. You know, they go through a tunnel briefly, and there's a Balrog, and it's terrible, and then they come out the tunnel. Big whoop. What are you going to do with that? Uh, Well, Turbine showed you what they're going to do with that. Moria was excellent. Uh... It had atmosphere and style. It had variety. Uh, here was this vast... Un- you know, it used to be this huge, amazing dwarven city, I think. I'm a little shaky on the lore. I'm not enough of a Tolkien geek to really tell you exactly what Moria was. But it was a, it was a majestic, awesome place. It wasn't just a tunnel. It wasn't just a little Skyrim dungeon diversion. Uh, and that came through very clearly in Turbine's Moria expansion for Lord of the Rings Online. Uh, so, anytime I think, "eh, how interesting can a dungeon be?" all I have to do is think of Moria, that turbine created so uh, I, I kind of um i'm I'm pretty hopeful with uh, with what underworld ascendant can turn into. Uh, just because it's a dungeon doesn't mean it has to be small. Just because the walls are close uh, close on either side of you doesn't mean it has to be limited. Uh, and just because it's dark. Doesn't mean it can't be vividly realized. So, uh, stand by in a year. We'll find out. Uh, finally on another note, I, I really have to apologize for the podcast not being on a more regular schedule. Uh, as you may know, we do a movie podcast and that has been on a, a frequent regular weekly schedule for literally years now. Um, mainly because I've got two co-hosts who you know, we all keep each other going. Uh, that's currently not the case with the Games Podcast. The updates have been sporadic. I apologize for that. Uh, as I've said before, and as I'll continue to say, you know, send me little needling messages saying, hey, Tom, do another Games Podcast. Uh, I, I Those mean a lot to me. Uh, and they will often get me off of my butt. So hopefully I'll see you back within a month, maybe even next week.